open the Word of God, our inspired and preserved scriptures in the King James Bible, to John chapter 7. David wrote, The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Paul wrote, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Paul explained what that word was. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Nehemiah showed us how, Ezra showed us how to preach. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. For any that are viewing this service or listening to it later, I recommend that you read Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 and verse 10, and that you read Psalm 1 in preparation for John 7. I cheated you a little bit on the preparatory email yesterday by not sharing very much with you of where I was going to go in this passage to have a little bit of an element of surprise. This first sermon, Lord helping me, we will cover verses 10 through 18, 10 through 17. And then the second service, we will cover verses 18 through 24. So we have section number two and section number three of this chapter. Each section leads to its key verse. The key verse of verses 10 through 17 is verse 17. And does it ever fit with Psalm 1? I love John 7, 17, and that is a 40-year love relationship with this verse. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. If you want to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't find it by studying. You find it by obeying. Your efforts at studying will not work until you obey. You must obey the truth that God has revealed, then he will reveal more. He will not reveal more by effort, intellect, intelligence, or other efforts. He will reveal more by obedience. That's going to be our key verse. We want to climb the steps from verse 10 up to verse 17. Then in the second service, it'll be verses 18 through 24. And the key verse is verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance like the Jews did, but judge righteous judgment, like Jesus did, and just like the prophecy we read in Isaiah 11, where it said he would not judge after the hearing of the ears or the seeing of the eyes, and so he's going to teach us that here in John chapter 7 in our second assembly. Let's get into this passage. Let me read to you. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly. Let me try to read distinctly verses 10 through 17 of John chapter 7. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Amen and amen. amen. We thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, for thy words, and we thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes, even unto us. But when his brethren were gone up, we are here referring to the brothers, literal children of the Mary, 
the literal biological and physical brothers of Jesus of Nazareth, they went up to the Feast of Tabernacles without him because Jesus didn't want to go with them, which was covered in the first nine verses that we studied two weeks ago. Jesus didn't want to go with them because they were unbelievers and they were going to expose him to the Jews in Judea, and he did not want to be exposed to the Jews in Judea without him choosing the setting for fear of his life because he was not yet ready to be killed. It tells us in the first verse of John 7, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, 70 miles north of Jerusalem, for he would not walk in Jewry or Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. There's a time for discretion. We learned that two weeks ago by spending two sermons on those nine verses. We are now at verse 10, and the brothers of Jesus have left without him, and he hung behind momentarily until they were out of sight, and then he himself went, as the next clause tells us. Then went he also up unto the feast. There were three annual feasts at which the men of Israel were to make an appearance. It didn't matter that the travel was a little long. It was 70 miles by foot. For Jesus to go to the feast in Jerusalem, they were of a weeks-long duration. It would take two or three days to get there, two or three days to return. That's a two-week trip to a church service. Didn't slow him. He went. It was expected in God's law. The Lord expected it of him. He didn't forsake the assembly as the manner of some is. Jesus was born and raised under the law of Moses, and he kept it perfectly for us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Circumcised the eighth day in the temple, in the synagogues, keeping the word of God. He always pleased his father, including distant church services. There were three feasts, remember them, Passover. Then there was a feast called the Feast of Weeks. The reason it was called the Feast of Weeks is because it came seven weeks after Passover, plus one day. So it was 50 days. Seven times seven is 49, plus one is 50. So it was called Penta, not Pentagon, but Pentecost. 50 days after Passover was also called First Fruits, for it was the beginning of harvest. And so it had three names in the Bible, Weeks, First Fruits, or Pentecost. And it was in our May. We know that Passover comes in March or April. Then there was the Feast of Tabernacles, which is this feast here, which was also called Booths, because Israel dwelt in a tabernacle or a temporal dwelling in their yards around their rooftops for a week to remind them of what it was like when they lived in Egypt. So it was also called Booths, because they took branches of trees and made booths to stay in for that week. It was also called the Feast of Ingatherings, because it was in September or October at harvest end, gathering in all the harvest. This is the feast that fell into neglect until the preaching of God's word in Nehemiah chapter 8, when they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. They realized they hadn't kept a feast that Moses had ordered for hundreds of years. And they gladly went out and gathered those limbs and built themselves booths and kept the feast. That is the proper attitude to have toward the Word of God when you hear the Word of God. Whatever it says that I'm not doing, I will do. Whatever it says I shouldn't be doing that I am doing, I'll stop. And that's the attitude we ought to have when we hear Scripture. Jesus went up to this feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He didn't go with a crowd. He didn't go with the multitude that could identify Him or would identify Him to the Jews. Our Lord's wisdom had prudence. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. The book of Proverbs teaches us, and Jesus' wisdom was full of prudence in that he knew it was not the time to be bold. His unbelieving brothers would have made a big scene of it, which he was not ready to do. When it was his time, he was not afraid for a big scene. When it was time, he told his apostles, go into the city, and you're going to see an ass and an ass's colt there. Just grab them and bring them to me. And if anybody says, what are you doing? Say, the master hath need of them. And when they brought that ass's colt out, which is what kings rode on, they put their blankets on him, spread their, clo their cloaks on him, spread their coats in the street. They put branches in the way, and they shouted, Hosanna to the king of Israel! Hosanna to the son of David! And the Pharisees cried out because that was blasphemy to them. 
Do you hear what they're saying about you? He said, if they were to be silent, the stones would cry out. And brethren, let's be Gentile stones today and do some crying out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Hosanna! Oh, he wasn't afraid. He was just prudent. Prudence is not a sign of fear. Prudence is a sign of wisdom. The lack of prudence is not a sign of zeal. The lack of prudence is is an evidence of stupid folly. Learn the difference. You want to, we want to use our efforts and expose ourselves at the right time for the right reason for the right result. Not just, be, not just to try to make ourselves a name. The Lord Jesus Christ was wise. Verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? The Jews knew. Remember, Jesus is now 32 years of age. So for a number of years with his parents, he made his way to Jerusalem for the feast. Then he's made his way on his own to Jerusalem for the feast. They knew he'd be coming. So they're seeking him at the feast, that he'd be present. Their evil intents had not abated, though it was about six months later since he had healed the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda that you read about last evening in John chapter 5. If you don't read some of these chapters together, you're going to get lost. John 7 refers to one miracle that Jesus did, and he appeals to this one miracle. Look at verse 21. I have done one work. He's appealing to one miracle. And he describes that miracle in the last part of verse 23. I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day. And if you flip back to John chapter 5 and verse 9, the impotent man that was beside the pool of Bethesda and couldn't get in the troubled waters in time to be healed, Jesus healed him and immediately the man was made whole. John 5, 9. That's I made every man a wit, every whit whole. And so you've got to keep in mind, we have John 6 in the middle, so you think that John 5 has been long forgotten, but not when men hate enough. When men hate enough, they will hold on to a past event long enough. It's called bitterness. It's called a grudge. It's called um, choler in the Bible in a man. And that's why cholerics had better guard their spirit because your spirit stinks. Your spirit is of the devil. Your spirit is of Nabal instead of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we we have this miracle that is under consideration here, and it's a miracle back from chapter 5, six months previous. Jesus left Jerusalem, did not heal anyone else, the pool of Bethesda, though the porches were full of impotent folk. He healed that one and disappeared, went back to Galilee and was there to be safe in in the backwater country, the redneck country of Israel. And then he came back to Jerusalem for this feast out of necessity. So there there we have the situation again. I just want you to grasp what's going on here. And verse 11 tells us, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? We assume these were the Jewish leaders for their willingness to be public about their request. Because it's going to tell us in just a couple of verses in verse 13, Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, But the Jewish leaders could talk about him because they were defending each other in their hatred against the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to verse 12. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. This we understand to be of the common people, but they're murmuring among themselves, not speaking openly, because we're about to be told that again in verse 13, that they did not speak openly about him. There was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Not only did his enemies expect his appearance, but so did the common people people of the populace. Now, brethren, men, men, even Christians, remember, this is the church of God. This is not Egypt. This is not Babylon. This is not Ethiopia. This is not Italy. This is Israel. This is the church. This is Jerusalem. This is the city of the great king. This is the city of God. This is the city of David. But men, even Christians, are going to murmur against the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men are going to disagree about Jesus Christ and his religion, so you need to get used to it. I need to get used to it and expect it, not be surprised by it or disappointed by it. It's the way it's going to be. It was the way it was with Jesus Christ. He was a perfect man, a perfect preacher, and we're neither. If you worry about what men think, you will hurt your soul with slavish fear. We don't worry about what men think. We worry about what God thinks. 
And so we prayed this morning, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, whether it's acceptable in your sight or anyone else's sight shouldn't matter to you or to me. We just want to say it according to God's word. If evangelistic failures discourage you, then you must forget this rule and experience that all men murmur, even among those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Consider that the most conservative today argue about lordship salvation. I'm not going to run down that road if I can restrain myself right now. I hope that you all know exactly what I'm referring to. The most conservative elements of so-called conservative fundamentalist Christianity want to argue about lordship salvation because they want to murmur about the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot be content with the word of God nor the doctrine of Christ. There was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. They had seen his miracles and heard his preaching and found nothing wrong. However, our Lord Jesus Christ was and is far, far more than just a good man. Who cares if they thought he was a good man? Who cares about those historians that will admit by the historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was a good man? He was far more than that. He was Emmanuel. God with us. He was Jehovah in the flesh. Remember that when on trial for his life, even great efforts could find no fault in him. They vetted him to the best of their ability and could find no fault in the Lord Jesus Christ. None of their testimonies agreed among themselves, though they hired the best they could to undo the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a good man, but he was far more than a good man. This is no testimony of anything to say that Jesus was a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Then there were those that considered him some Jewish gypsy teaching heresy, and that he was casting out devils by the power of the devil. This would have been an easy conclusion for those trusting their religious leaders. Because if you trusted the religious leaders of the Jews, then you had to hate the Lord Jesus Christ because they told you to hate him, that he was a blasphemer, an imposter, filled with the devil, and preaching heresy. So we shouldn't be surprised by the murmuring among the people. And those that trust their religious leaders today, instead of the word of God, are going to hate the Jesus Christ that we preach. And and so it is. Most everyone we meet can't stand the Jesus that we worship, nor the God that we serve. If God was anything like you preach preach him to be, I don't want to know him. We appreciate that compliment. You don't know him, and it's obvious by your disrespect for the truth of God's word. They don't know Jesus Christ, that long-haired hermaphrodite that they call Jesus is no Jesus. That's another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And so we have here what was happening to the Lord Jesus in his own ministry, and so it shouldn't surprise us when it happens to us when we try to speak of the Lord. Verse 13, Howbeit, no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. This murmuring in verse 12 was primarily in quiet, small groups, ear to ear, in households of the common people. Howbeit, no man spake openly of him. There were many that believed in Galilee and Judea, but they were prudent because at this time it was dangerous to say anything openly about Jesus Christ. They did it in private. Then there were those that feared losing their place in the synagogue. In a couple of chapters, John chapter 9, we meet the man born blind. And his parents show us that there was a general fear of the Jews. Let's follow, If you'll flip over a couple of chapters to John 9, his parents are interrogated by the Jewish leadership. Verse 19, they interrogate him, them, his two parents. They ask them, saying, is this your son? who ye say was born blind. How, how many parents go around saying my son was born blind if he wasn't born blind? Except in today's handout generation. Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. 
And so there's the fear of man introduced to us in this 13th verse of John chapter 7. How much do you love the Lord Jesus? Will you speak of him in safe settings? Hopefully you would. Would you be willing to lose your life by claiming him as your Lord and Savior if that was the issue of life or death? North Korea's back in the news. When I was a seven-year-old, a missionary from North Korea came to visit the church where I was a member. My father was the pastor and told the story of the communists, the Korean and Chinese communists surrounding a Baptist church and painting a cross on the sidewalk out front of the front door, setting up a machine gun and coming in and telling the church, you all have to leave this building. If you'll step on the cross that's painted on the sidewalk, we'll let you go. If you won't, you're going to be gunned down in front of this church building. Caused a lot of terror. So a young girl was first to go out and step around the Lord Jesus Christ and be shot. Now see, that's good stuff for a seven-year-old. Do you remember it, brother? Thank you, Dad. Would I be willing to go out and step around the cross of Christ and be the first one to do it? Would you show the rest of us how to do it? We live in the fat, happy, prosperous, protected, luxurious, spoiled, pampered land of America. Are you afraid to pray over your food when you're in a public place? Oh, let it hang out. Pray and pray some more. What's there to be afraid of? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who's our king. Those pagans around us, we don't have to be obnoxious about it, but we don't have to fear man either. For fear of the Jews. Keeping your place at John chapter 7, look at a principle of wisdom, a principle of righteousness that Solomon gave us in Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29, Solomon taught us wisdom here. And that is not to fear man. It's called peer pressure when we refer to children or youth in school, but it affects all ages. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare. You've got a trap in your life. There's a pit in your life. You're going to fall into it and get caught. You're going to be bound in bondage and sold into slavery if you're afraid of man. The fear of man bringeth a snare. You're going to get caught. Then you're going to be a slave because you fear what other people think of you. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. You want to be safe? It's not to give other men what they want to hear. It's not to please them. It's to please God. God being on your side is a whole lot better than men accepting you because you've compromised. Lord, teach us that principle right there. The fear of man bringeth a snare. There is a trap in caring what people think about you. When they are enemies of the truth, we don't want to be offensive, especially to the people of God. But this isn't talking about that. This is talking about being afraid of testifying of Christ or living for Christ among the world. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. How important is it to you to be accepted by men? Get over it as soon as possible. What do you fear? Them making fun of you? If they make fun of you, get excited and do some dancing. Because Matthew chapter 5 says, Be exceeding glad and rejoice. If they revile you and speak all evil, of, evil against you falsely, for so spoke they against your fathers the prophets. Your blessing is in heaven. There's three verses long about celebrating if they make fun of you. What do you fear? Persecution? It proves heaven. It's a token of two things. When other men persecute you even to death, the persecution is a token of two things. One, you're going to heaven. Two, they're going to hell. It says so in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 28 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. So rejoice. What do you fear? Losing friends? That's real discipleship. Thank you, Lord, for bringing the sword of discipleship into my life. The Bible says... Jesus said, I came not to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. 
Because God's going to turn family members against you to see if you love him enough to give up family for him. So do you fear losing friends? That's real discipleship. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege. I thank God that ministers are warned strongly throughout the Bible not to be afraid. Keeping your hand at John chapter 7, look at Isaiah 51. I could share many verses with you on this particular point. Let me share a few. I love each one of you, and I desire your perfection before Jesus Christ with all my heart. I want to burn myself out to help you get ready to stand before Jesus Christ and be approved and accepted of Him and to be there confidently. But I don't fear any one of you or all of you together. I couldn't care less what you think, individually or collectively. And don't let that offend you. Be glad for it. Isaiah 51 and verse 7. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. Who cares what you call me? I think I learned about kindergarten age. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And sticks and stones breaking my bones, Jesus said, don't be afraid of that. That's just going to get you to heaven sooner. Jesus said in Luke 12, 4 and 5, And my friends, I say unto you, fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's the fear of God. I truly meant what I said. If he wants to use me or abuse me for his glory, he can do either. And I hope that you mean that with me today. We sing a song that if our souls were sent to hell, his righteous law proves it well. He would be righteous in sending us to hell. That's Isaiah 51 and verse 7. Look at verse 12. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. That's all I need for comfort. My wife can't comfort me. I may have the best wife in this church. I know. Go ahead and say it. But she can't comfort me compared to the Lord's comfort of me. Look at all you smiling at each other out there, all the women wanting their husbands to jump up and say, no, it's mine, it's mine. Well, your wives can't comfort you compared to the way the Lord can comfort you. Look at this. I, this is the Lord Jehovah speaking. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? Why would we be afraid of people that are raised up, cut down, and dry up like grass and put into an oven and burned? I comfort you. Be afraid of me. Don't worry about anyone else. I could spend the rest of the time until break right now on this subject, and I would enjoy every minute of it. But remember, we've got a key verse that we need to get to so that I can have the first Sunday in my life in which I accomplished my intended purpose. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 8. This is the call of Jeremiah. Be not afraid of their faces. In an ordination service, there better be some warnings and exhortations just like this. Jeremiah 1.8. Jeremiah didn't want to be a prophet, just like Moses didn't want to be a prophet, just like Paul didn't want to be an apostle. Be not afraid of their faces. Go ahead and make a face at me. Oh, come on. They've been doing that all my life. For I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Notice, the Lord's with him, so be not afraid of their faces. Look at verse 17. Thou therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. That's the scary thing. If a man gets afraid of his congregation, what if they throw me out? What if they throw me out? What will I do? Well, you know what? Most little boys... Most little boys got saved sometime in some ridiculous salvation experience. They heard some preacher tell some sob story about going to Bible seminary, and so they they grow up, they're 18, they graduate, they don't know what to do. Am I going to pump gas? Am I going to be an engineer? Let me look through the school catalog, you know, and oh, there's minister. Oh, I'll be a minister. That sounds pretty easy. I only got to work one day a week. So they go into the ministry. They go and get a four-year degree in some Bible college, and they go to three years of seminary, cemetery, whatever you want to call it. More on that coming up. Oh, yes, it's verse 17, our key verse. More on that is coming. So they've never had a job. These little boys that are in the ministry have never had a job. They've never earned a buck. 
So guess what? They're afraid. If I get this congregation mad at me, they can vote me out of the pulpit, and what will I do? I would share stories with some of you that go to the world's most unusual university about the men whose names are on that university and what they actually confessed on this very point of doctrine. Some of you know what I'm talking about. They don't know what to do. What's a minister going to do? He's never got his hands dirty. He's never got his mind dirty. What's he going to do? There's that fear in a false minister or in ministers poorly prepared about what a congregation could do to them and then what would they do if they were unemployed all of a sudden. And so they're afraid of people's faces and they want to make everyone happy and so they water down the doctrine and they melt, preach like a milk-toast, effeminate minister instead of blasting the gospel trumpet like Elijah, John the Baptist, and every other preacher in the Bible Amen. did. Lord, save us from that yeah. kind of junk. Look at Ezekiel. Let's just look at these. We've got to hurry here. Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6. Here's the calling of Ezekiel. You know, chapter 1 is that incredible vision God gave him to get his attention about the glory of the Lord. Chapter 2 is his ordination service from God. And thou son of man, Ezekiel 2, 6. Thou son of man, be not afraid of them. Neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee. Though they beat you with briars and thorns, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. They put you in some dungeon. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. For they are most rebellious. It doesn't matter if they follow you or not, if they believe it or not, if they pat you on the back and say, great sermon, pastor, or not. You preach my words and don't be afraid of what they can do to you, even if it involves briars and thorns and scorpions. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Who spoke those words? The apostle Paul did. To whom did he speak them? Young Timothy who was underaged in most people's opinion, and so Paul told him, let no man despise thy youth. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Due to the, the vehement hatred, violence, and persecution that the Jews promised anyone confessing Christ, they wouldn't confess him. John 12 teaches the same thing that John 9 did about the parents of the man born blind. But notice, in that place, it tells us a little bit more about their character. Their weakness was loving the praise of men over the praise of God. If you want the praise of men, you are in deep trouble. We want the praise of God, and that's all that matters. Yes, we want to grow in favor with God and men, but do you know how we do that? We grow in favor with God, and then we will be in favor with godly men, and we will be in favor with most men if our lives are pleasing God. Forget man's praise. It is worthless or dangerous ignorant or treacherous. Others came to Jesus or did things for him anyway. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night for fear of the Jews. And here in John chapter 7 and verse 50, it says Nicodemus spoke up again. In this chapter of John 7, we have Nicodemus speaking up again, and they immediately jump his case because he even implied that maybe he was trying to defend the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul had appreciation for Jews that did not crumble, did not cave. And they're described in Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 32 to the end of the chapter. In verse 31, he says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But you people, don't throw away your confidence because I remember the reputation that you had. You cheerfully enjoyed the spoiling of your goods. You did anything you could to help the preaching of the gospel. Hold on to that confidence and you have done so. Continue in it. It's a great description. For we are not of them. And brethren, here's, here's deconverted elect number 11 that I happened into since Wednesday when I gave you 10 examples of deconverted elect. There's another group in Hebrews chapter 11 where Paul said, We are not of them that turn back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Because there's a, there's a practical salvation of those that, that stay committed to it and remain faithful to the Lord for, their, for their, the duration of their lives. Then there are those that turn back and are judged by God. 
like the, the generation that left Egypt turned back and did not want to take the land of Canaan. Paul was afraid of the Hebrews that he wrote doing that because he wrote about his fear in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and verses 11. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Let's not be afraid of men. Where, when, and why are you afraid to own the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you speak of God once in a while, you are nothing. Most Americans talk about God whoever he is. The name of Jesus Christ sets you apart immediately from Muslims, JWs, Jews, and Hindus. Why don't you want to mention his name? Get the name of Jesus Christ out there. It's totally different than God. Listen, to a Muslim, Allah is God. To a Hindu, Vishnu, Brahma, and about a million others are God. Speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that makes us afraid and ashamed of him? Because you know that's not nearly as acceptable. Because there is in our flesh a resentment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our flesh. A resentment of Him. Speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll separate your friends quickly. The name of Jesus Christ. Where, when, and why are you afraid to own the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ? While only fools broadcast our faith everywhere, we should not be ashamed of it. We need not apologize for what the Lord has shown us and not shown them. We should thank God for it and be willing to speak when we have an opportunity. Now verse 14 of John 7. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. About the midst of the feast. This is not when he hit Jerusalem. He was there on time. But this is describing when he taught in the temple. He would have been there for the whole feast just as Moses' law required. He went up into the temple and taught. We're not told what he taught, but his theme is always the kingdom of God and pleasing God and obeying the scriptures. Though he could have occupied himself in countless things at the Feast of Tabernacles, look what he went about to do. He taught instead. You want to call him afraid for coming on his own, as it were, in secret without coming with his unbelieving brothers? He wasn't afraid. Look what he does in the midst of the feast. The searching for him has dissipated. We're halfway through the seven-day feast. He shows up in the great temple built by Zerubbabel, added on to by Herod the Great, one of the wonders of the world, and he stands in that place and unleashes the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was fearless. But he did it on his terms, not their terms. So we come to verse 17. We come to verse 15. Verse 15. See, I'm getting eager to get to the key verse. Uh, verse 15. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? The Jews marveled. Now to marvel is to be filled with wonder or astonishment, to be struck with surprise. Marvel does not mean conviction or conversion. Their testimony is by unbelief. Notice, they don't say in verse 15, How knoweth this man letters? By the direct inspiration of the Spirit of God, because he was given the Spirit without measure, which we learned in John chapter 3, four chapters ago. There's nothing like that here. This is no confession of faith in Jesus Christ. It is depravity that can marvel at miracles and inherent knowledge in a man and yet not believe. How knoweth this man letters? They did not mean the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Please. They did not mean spelling correctly. They did not mean reading or writing. They meant the Old Testament scriptures being able to explain the doctrine of them and apply it so plainly and so authoritatively because that's what the rest of the New Testament tells us and that's what the next verse tells us. Jesus answered them and said, My spelling test you have before you that I know all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22 of them, and you can see that I can spell Hebrew words correctly. No, no, no. He said, My doctrine. So when it says letters, it's referring to doctrine of the Old Testament. They had never heard a preacher like the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. When he finished the Sermon on the Mount, the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7, after three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Amen. He was totally unlike the effeminate, milquetoast Joel Osteens of his generation. Oh, I am sorry, Pharisees. That is not fair. 
that is just not fair for me to compare you to Joel. I know Joel doesn't know anything about the Bible. You knew the Bible inside and out, but you were just rebellious, flat-out, wicked Pharisees. How knoweth this man letters? Jesus did not give demonstrations of such rudimentary, elementary aspects of language. Jesus preached the scriptures with authority and simplicity not heard before. The issue is exceptional doctrinal truth and wisdom conveyed through his words. Matthew 13, 54 puts it this way. Matthew 13, 54 is, is a comparable text to this one in John. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom? So we've got a synonym for letters. This wisdom and these mighty works. Jesus referred to the scriptures by a single letter. So when it says letters, Jesus referred to the scriptures as not a jot or a tittle passing away. A jot is the smallest letter. A tittle is the smallest mark with a letter. I've shown you that from Psalm 119 in the King James Bible. It explains what a jot is, a letter, one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and then what a tittle is by comparing some of those letters there in Psalm 119, in a, even in an English Bible. The Jews taught their children the scriptures at home. Weren't they taught that from Moses? Didn't Moses tell them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 11, these words that I have taught you, you are to teach to your children at home when thou risest up, when thou liest down, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou sittest in thine house. It was to be a constant daily diet, and Hebrew parents did that. And so it could be said of Timothy, Paul said of Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, thou hast, from a child, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. So Jesus had been taught the Holy Scriptures. They shouldn't have been surprised. However, the Lord Jesus Christ had an understanding of the Scriptures that no man had ever heard before. He was opening up the Word of God to them. Do you remember on the way to, the, to Emmaus, there were two disciples with him, and it said their hearts burned within them as he opened up the Scriptures to them. Oh, that's an exciting preaching service. When things are made plain enough to you from the Word of God that your heart burns within you. Lord, give us more such days. You know Psalm 78, don't you, Chris? The father to the children and to another generation and they to their children. There are four generations in Psalm 78. Are there four generations in Joel 1? Hebrew parents did that for their children and you ought to do it for your children. Teach them the word of God. At 12 years of age, Jesus answered and asked questions of the doctors of the law. That's letters. He had his letters for sure. He could handle the doctors of the law in Luke chapter 2. Having never learned... Jesus did not have their formal education, meaning seminary training of Jewish doctors. Jesus did not have the religious school degrees or been taught by their doctors. Compare how the Jews marveled at the uneducated Galileans in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. When they heard Peter and John, who were mere fishermen and were ordained to the ministry after the age of 30, hadn't, didn't have much formal education, they knew that they were unlearned and ignorant men. And what did they learn about? What did they know about them after they heard them preach just a few sentences? They had been with Jesus. Amen. They had been with Jesus. Young men, Jesus Christ gave you an example and instruction of true greatness right here. You do not have to have an education that appeals to or pleases men. You just need to know the Word of God. Learn everything you can about Elihu and his wisdom. Every young man, I'm talking to every young man. You learn about Elihu, starting in Job chapter 32. There's a whole lot of material on our website about Elihu. He is a great example for young men to learn the Word of God and not to be afraid of old men who have reputations of wisdom. Meditate and obey God's words like David did for wisdom. Do you know the verses? I have kept thy precepts, therefore you've given me understanding greater than my teachers, greater than the ancients, and greater than my enemies. Because you lay hold of God's words, you keep them, obey them, and you meditate upon them. That's Psalm 1 for you, Mark. They are Elihu and David. Brethren, learn about Elihu and his wisdom. What did Elihu say? Brethren, your break's going to be a little later than I thought it was going to be. I'm not, I'm not changing my course. You're just changing your appetite. Job 32 and verse 6, Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young and ye are very old. He's sitting with the four wisest men on earth. They were old men, he was a young man. Wherefore, I was afraid, this is Job 32, just listen. 
and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. You old men should be giving the right answer. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Elihu was given understanding by direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have understanding and wisdom by indirect inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he inspired the words of Scripture. And so we trust the words of Scripture. We want to be like Elihu. Every one of you young men are incredibly dear to me. I will do anything for any one of you young men that you want to be great in the sight of the Lord and learn his word and hold on to it. I'll fill you, I'll feed you, I'll help you. I want you to be like Elihu, first of all. I want you to be like David, second of all, in Psalm 119. I want you to be like Daniel, who purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. And God made him ten times wiser than any Chaldean soothsayer or wise man in the Babylonian empire. I want you to pray like David. Lord, open mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. I want you to pray like Solomon. I am but a little child. Give me a wise and understanding heart. I want you to be filled with the Spirit like the deacon Stephen was. They could not resist or gainsay Stephen when he preached in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 because he was full of the Holy Ghost. I want you to pray for more of that spirit of enlightenment. And I want you to walk with Jesus like the apostles so that when you open your mouth, men know that you've been with Jesus. Young men, every day that passes, you're being less of a young man and more of an old man. My days are past. I will burn myself out for you if you will show me a little bit of zeal for the word of God. You know I'm thankful for young men that come to me and say, give me a fire hose and let me stick it in my mouth and flood me. You know, it makes me sick. We offer so much wisdom in this church from the word of God, but you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Lord, make some young men drink. Heavenly Father, we don't need a translation of scriptures like William Tyndale prayed in the fires of the King of England. We need some young men that have, a family, uh, that have a craving and a desire and a delight in your words and want to learn it more. Lord, thank you for weaning me from all the garbage of this world. Show me some more young men. Take heed, young men, how you hear preaching sent your way. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear, Luke 8, 18. Because to him that hath, more shall be given, and him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he thinks that he has. That's a serious judgment. You don't need cemetery training of ignorant theologians. You know, who am I to say that? I'm someone standing on the word of God and showing you John chapter 7 that they said, how does this man understand letters since he has right. no learning? He's never been to cemetery. How does he know the doctrine of God? How can he interpret and apply the Old Testament scriptures? I want you to remember, this is why I say things like this. You don't need a seminary or cemetery of ignorant theologians. Consider that 95% of them, even the reformers, err on baptism three ways. They can't figure out the doctrine of baptism three ways, even the reformers, the John Kelvins and Martin Luthers and the rest of the, of the whitewashed Roman Catholics. That's what a reformer is, a whitewashed Roman Catholic. Right. Three ways they can't even figure out baptism. They say that it saves and regenerates. They do it to infants, and they do it by sprinkling and pouring. They can't even read the New Testament that a child can read and understand three things. Baptism doesn't save. Children, who went to heaven without being baptized? The thief on the cross. Oh, that's hard. How many infants were baptized in the New Testament? None. You have to be a believer. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. He that believeth and is baptized, you have to be old enough to be a believer. How many were sprinkled or poured? None. The Bible says that you had to be where there was much water. John 3, 23, John the Baptist baptized and ain't near to Salem because there was much water there. Why did he need much water? Because you got to get somebody down under the water and back up out of the water. Why did the Philip the evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch stop a chariot, go down, both of them go down into the water and both of them come up out of the water? Three things. That should tell you right there about theologians. You want to read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin? Why do you want to read them? My time is, why would I want to read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin? He's a whitewashed Catholic. Right. Do you know what he did to Michael Servetus that hated infant baptism and believed the sonship of Jesus Christ like we do? He had him burned at the stake. Right. 
Seminaries, by design, create priestcraft against the integrity of God's words. That's exalt the ministry to a place where they're like priests, and it turns into priestcraft. That is an English word. It's, it's a single word, priestcraft, where you exalt the ministry over the people. By lower and higher textual criticism, learning two profitless alphabets, seminaries puff up the, puff up the pride of men and, and put fear in the laity or the people in the PU so they're afraid to ask questions and they just sit there and listen to the explanations of men who don't know anything about the Bible and who just want to corrupt the Bible and change the Bible and print a new edition every year. Right. None of this is to be understood as rejecting all human learning and Bible study. Jesus was an exception along with the apostles by direct inspiration. Timothy was to study the word of God faithfully and be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul told Timothy, give thyself holy. How much is that? How much time does he have for a Christian day school? Give thyself holy to reading, to exhortation and doctrine. How much time does he have for summer camps? I'm sorry, youth, that I've never been to one of your summer camps, but I'm not very sorry. Give thyself wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16, that thy profiting may appear unto all. Do you know what kind of profiting he's talking about? Opening up the word of God and rightly dividing it. No man can read, write, speak publicly, use history, apply history without learning. There's a very real need for teachers, even for future ministers. The things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. It's a gift from God. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. What they were saying in verse 15, How knoweth this man letters? His interpretation of the Old Testament sure sounds good, but he's never learned. He must be making this all up. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Jesus knew their thoughts and or words and answered their objection against him. In their minds, since he had not been taught, then he had invented his doctrine. Thus our website, if you look at our website, provides no evidence of authors, authority, credentials, or otherwise. And we love it that way. You know, when people write and say, who is the author behind such and such, and what kind of degrees does he have? Are you kidding me? I don't have time for such a person. Why would they ask such a stupid question? Yep. Why would they ask such a stupid question? In Acts chapter 7 and verse 17, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, where it says the Bereans were no, more noble than those in Thessalonica, it said they did two things. They received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They did not inquire about Paul's biography. They did not inquire about Paul's seminary degree. I am so thankful that my degrees are in bank finance. Thank you, Lord. My doctrine is not mine. Jesus did not invent his doctrine, and he declared it to the murmuring hearers. His doctrine was clearly his by commitment and conviction, but not origin. When he said, my doctrine is not mine, he meant it didn't originate with me, but it is mine because I have bought into it, and I claim it as my own, and I'm preaching it as my own, but it's from God. And remember how I showed you just recently Galatians chapter 1, where Paul said, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel that I preach unto you is not taught by man. And then he went and explained for about 15 verses. Galatians 1 is beautiful. I certify. Paul was certified as a real gospel preacher because he had learned it straight from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's in Galatians 1. Our doctrine is not ours, for it is as much God's by virtue of inspired Scripture. Our doctrine here in this church isn't ours. It's the Lord's, and he's shown it to us in the Word of God. Jesus said, but his that sent me. God commissioned Jesus as his son to preach his doctrine and truth to men. Jesus had declared this fact to the Jews already, and he would declare it again. Look at chapter 8 and verse 28. Just the next chapter, look at Jesus. When he, this is the way he spoke. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. My Father taught me. He taught us that in John chapter 5, John chapter 3. Verse 17 of John 7. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Jesus told them, they're, they're confused. They're unsettled. Jesus did not have seminary training. Jesus had not learned from the doctors of the Jews. Therefore, his doctrine was being questioned by them. 
He tells them in verse 16, my doctrine is not mine. My doctrine is God's given to me by him. Now, do you really want to know whether my doctrine is mine and God's or not? Do you want to know that what I'm preaching to you is God's truth? Do you really want to know? Here is the axiom for knowing. Do you remember, David, this verse decades ago? The problem child? Oh, yes. John 7, 17. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You cannot figure out the things yourself. You have got to obey with the truth the Lord shows you. As the Lord shows you truth, obey it, and he'll show you more. Oh, Lord, help me right now. We're in deep trouble time-wise, Lord. How were the Jews to confirm and verify that the doctrine of Jesus Christ, his public preaching, was truly God's? They did not know Scripture well themselves. They couldn't check him out by the Scriptures easily, and their teachers were denying him. You know, it should be a moot point given all the miracles that Jesus was doing, but Jesus gave them another rule to follow, and it's a beautiful rule. And I want you to remember it. This is the key verse of this section of John chapter 7. Jesus gave a great axiom for truth to them that, to, for them and for us to know that doctrine is true. God's will, cl clearly revealed in the Bible, is crucial for blessing and knowledge. Natural man needs great assistance to learn truth, which requires our obedience of God then he will bless us. God has offered truth in creation, providence, and in our consciences. Obey it all. Obey it all. If you disobey, he'll blind you. Look what he does to those that disobey creation in Romans chapter 1. It is serious twisting and rewiring of their minds. God mocks idolaters that violate the simple logic of divine power. It is impossible to have a tree stump, burn one-third of it for your food, burn one-third of it to warm your body, and make the final third into a god and fall down and worship it. That defies all logic and, and understanding that God gave natural man. And when you do that, he puts a lie in your right hand, blinds and hardens your heart so that you cannot let go. If you want it that way. God has offered truth that you cannot refute in the Bible. Obey it perfectly. If we disobey offered truth, he'll take it away. Luke 8, 18. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. I've already quoted the verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you reject the love of the truth, he'll send you strong delusion to believe a lie that you all might be damned who believe not the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. You know those verses. What's our first rule of Bible economics? When I teach the most practical, the most carnal, the most earthly, the most financial, the most filthy lucre sermon series ever in the history of this church, it is Bible economics. But what was the first rule out of 10 to be successful economically and financially. Rule number one, obey God. obey God. How in the world does that fit into a financial presentation from the Bible? Because if you're obeying God, he'll bless you. And if you're disobeying God, he'll blow against you and you'll have holes in your bags and you'll put wages into holes with, bag, into holes with bags in them. <laughs> into bags with holes in them. Just be thankful I recognized it. The day is coming, I won't recognize it. And the big hook can just reach up here and pull me out. Lord, give me a few more months. God honors obedience, but he will punish the disobedient, often with blindness. You know the, you know the passages, don't you? Like Isaiah chapter 20, 29 that describes Israel. They stagger, but they're not drunk. What's wrong with them? Oh, I have poured out a blinding spirit upon them, so that they cannot understand the word of the Lord anymore. Why? Because they disobeyed me. The first rule of understanding Bible doctrine is to obey what he has shown you. Do not be sinning in your life or you're not going to see the truth that's right before your eyes. If any man will do his will, if any man will do his will, any of you Jews that are listening to me, my miracles weren't enough, the way I'm preaching isn't enough, do you really want to know that this doctrine I'm giving you is from God, obey everything that God has shown you, and by His Spirit, and by opening Scripture to you, you will know that this doctrine is God's. Obey everything that He has shown you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right. Look at Proverbs chapter 4. Sorry, I need this verse. Proverbs chapter 4. When I first heard the truth of God's sovereign grace, that we preach in this church. 
I got very excited about it. But I had been raised an Arminian. And so I had lots of questions about salvation and man's free will and the purpose of the gospel and election and all those kind of things. And for two years, I made diligent search in the Word of God, in historical documents, in the Reformers' theologies. I made diligent search to see if I could figure it all out and be content with my own personal understanding of it all before I made a commitment to a church similar to ours. I was there first every Sunday, was there last every Sunday, entertained and helped visitors, put hymnals out for two years. And then I was exhorted by this verse and told that I was being idiotic and that I was exhorted by John 7, 17. That's why there's been a 40-year love affair. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or of God. Look at this verse. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18. Proverbs 4, 18. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The path of the just is as the shining light. Now, what's a just man? A just man is an obedient man, a man obeying the Scriptures and doing the will of God. What is his path like? It's like the shining light that shineth more and more under the perfect day. So what had you better be doing with the light God's given you? Moving forward by obedience in that light, and he will shed more light. Now, the way it was presented to me is not truly the interpretation or application of this verse, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I hope to make the point. Crosby, you do not want to obey the gospel and join this church because you expect that when you are some distance from home, when you turn your headlights on, that those lights ought to shine every inch of the way all the way into your garage. When instead... You turn your headlights on, put the car in gear, and you drive forward in the 300 feet of light that the headlights give you. And as you move forward, the headlights give you more light. And they will lead you around every turn, through every dark alley, into your garage. Are you obeying the truth that's been shown you? Oh, I'll be baptized tomorrow morning. Honest. That's how... Two years, because as far as I knew and as far as I could see, it was the truth. But I just wanted to get every I dotted and every T crossed just the way to satisfy me. But look what Jesus says right here in our passage. Jesus brought this up to us in John 7 today. If any man will do his will. Now look at Proverbs 4 and verse 18. But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. When you stand at a sunrise and the sun has not risen yet, there's not even a glow on the horizon, it's perfectly black, you can't do anything, you can't work, you can't function yet because there's no light. But then that sun starts to rise and as it gives more and more light, you're able to do more and more and it shines more and more under the perfect day when the sun is at full noon and you can do anything that you need to do. But you start moving. We start at daybreak, don't we? Before it's perfect lights. David, you go to work while it's still dark. That David. Smith. And so the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more under the perfect day. This is one of the cross-references, one of many cross-references that are in my outline that I have to leave with you because we need to finish this at some reasonable point in time. Fulfilling God's righteous priorities will bring his great blessings, including his light and wisdom and understanding and knowledge that the doctrine is of God. If you fear man or you are disobeying, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that he could not preach to them because they were still carnal. He could not preach spiritual truth to them because they were still carnal. Those who delight in God and hearing his word will be taught. They will understand like they did in Nehemiah chapter 8. But when you go to Nehemiah chapter 8 and you lead up to that 8th verse where it says, so they read in the book of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. When you read up to that verse, it describes their great attitude and spirit and desire and delight in God's word and worship. Right. 
And when you have the right attitude and spirit in God's word and worship, he will pour out understanding upon you. This is the word of God. When you delight in him and tremble before his word, he will draw nigh to you. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 said, laying aside malice, envies, and evil speakings, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Things to lay off, things to put on, if any man will do his will. If you want to come before God and cleanse yourself, repent of your sins, and do everything he has told you you ought to do, he will give you more understanding and light, and it will shine until the sun is at its full zenith over you more and more unto the perfect day. The perfect day in a day, the perfect day in your life. He will lead you into the truth, and he has led us. That is why there is constant pressure in this church to repent of our known sins, to come before God with the prayer that we are little children, and for him to show us his truth. We are so dangerous in ourselves, we've got to exhort one another daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. We are capable of departing from the living God through the deceitfulness of sin. Carnality has two enemies of truth, a worldly mindset that cannot recognize spiritual things, and two, it has divine judgment set against that man for disobeying God in things he knows better. He shall know of the doctrine. It is the path of the just that shines more and more to the perfect day. A man must obey truth already revealed before God will grant more truth. Therefore, a just man will be led along by God's light as he follows in that light. Fools want to see everything clearly before they commit to what is known, but that's not the way God does it. He says, take heed, therefore, how ye hear. If you have, I'll give you more. But I'll take away what you think you have if you don't respond right now the right way. We should rejoice and be glad and celebrate for the truth he shows us bit by bit, piece by piece, verse by verse. God will bless the righteous man with revelation and truth. Psalm 25 is beautiful to that end. Psalm 25 is a psalm I gave you last evening. Do you know why God sent the great apostle Peter to Cornelius? The great apostle Peter went to Cornelius. Why? Because God saw everything he was doing in his house. Do you know what he was doing? He was praying all way. He was giving alms to the people, and he feared God with his whole house. He was leading his people in the fear and worship of the Lord Jehovah, and he was of the Italian band. He gets Peter sent to his house. David knew more than the ancients by keeping God's precepts. The man that meditates in God's word and delights in it, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He's going to prosper. God will know his way and bless him with truth. On and on the Bible says this. Elihu explained the need of obedience for learning truth in Job chapter 36. Solomon taught severe judgment. He that being often reproved hardeneth his heart shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. That's the difference. Oh, this is huge. Jesus gave us an axiom of truth that is wonderful, brethren. Embrace John 7, 17. If any man will do his will, Jesus speaking to an audience that didn't know whether he was speaking the truth or not. He was from Galilee. He hadn't been trained in their seminaries. How do we know that this is the truth of God? It's so different than what we've heard before. Oh, many people have said that about us. How do we know that it's the truth of God? Obey what you know from God's, and he'll show you. He'll confirm it inside by the spirit of illumination, enlightenment, and confirmation. From a spiritual standpoint, it'll open up the word of God to you. You see, this is a spiritual relationship we have with truth. It's not a natural relationship. If any man will do his will, if any, he looked out and, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or whether it's of God. Oh, yes. Okay. Thank you, Lord. Sorry, Lord. Do we know everything? Are you kidding? Are we obeying everything that we know? Lord, help us. Right. Amen. Amen. Amen.